everyone to today's Bible reading is Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 31. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You can be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After the threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of, of God boldly. Thanks, Jonathan. Good morning, everyone. You make the room up here. We have met before. My name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Unley, and um, let me add my welcome to Hendres and to those who have been up here on the platform beforehand. Uh, let me just tell you what we're doing. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 4. We're picking up the story midway through a passage. Uh, Peter and John, if you are unfamiliar with this story, uh, two apostles of Jesus have recently healed a lame man and because of that they've been thrown into jail. We are working our way through the book of Acts as a church. We're actually about to hit pause on Acts and for the next three weeks, so today we're stopping Acts at chapter 4 here. For the next three weeks, Hendre, our minister in training, is going to be taking us through two Thessalonians over the next three weeks. So if you haven't met Hendre yet, you've seen him up the front here leading our service this morning. You'd like to say hello to him over a cup of coffee after our time together this morning. Uh, I hope also you got a leaflet when you came in today and you would have found inside that leaflet a printout of Acts chapter 4. It'd be great to have that with you this morning as we work our way through this passage. I'm going to ask you to underline a few things, circle a few things as we work our way 
through this section of the Bible. There are some more copies out on the hall table if you don't have one and grab a pen. Don't be shy about getting up and going to grab one. Please do that. One of the things that we've seen in the book of Acts as we've been working our way through over the last few weeks is this truth, that those who have the Spirit in their hearts have Jesus on their lips. I've been saying that phrase over and over again. What I mean by that is this, that those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, well, their speech is all about Jesus. We saw that back in chapter 2 with Peter. Do you remember after Pentecost, having been filled with the Spirit, Peter then delivers this sermon. It's a long sermon, but the crescendo, the main point in what he wants to say is this, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. That's what Peter says, Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. That's the high point in his sermon. Now, if you don't know that today, if that's not something that you have thought about who Jesus is, I'd love you to come and chat with me about that after our time together. Uh, you might like to use the little tear-off slip on your leaflet. Um, you could just jot a little note on there, put your phone number on there and pop it in the everything box on the whole table. I'd love to chat with you in the week about this because this is the key message of the book of Acts, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah what I would call the core of the gospel, the gospel truth, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And the book of Acts, it's really a story about how that truth, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, makes its way from Jerusalem to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And in chapter 4 today, we see that mission of Jesus being declared Lord and Messiah, that mission hit its first roadblock or its first hurdle because Peter and John are thrown into jail. Was in the reading that's just before what we read this morning. You might wonder what's their crime? Why do they find themselves in jail? The answer is that they were speaking, speaking about Jesus, declaring him Lord and Messiah. Now it seems a bit bizarre for us today, doesn't it, that you'd be thrown into jail for speaking in our world of free speech that feels a bit strange. I should tell you, in my house, sometimes I wish that I could lock people up for the way that they're speaking. Um, in our house, it's not so much to do with what they're saying, but it's the volume. I've got four kids, and some evenings it just makes your ears bleed, really. But, um, yeah, that's the truth. Um, I can't lock them up for doing that. But in the passage, it's not so much the noise that's caused Peter and John to be thrown into jail. It's rather what they've said that matters. Because these words have been having a big impact as they've spoken them in Jerusalem. God's mission is going out. It is going forward. Andrew's got a, a passage he can put up on the screen for me, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, not in, your, not in your printout today, but I want to read this to you. It says this, Many who heard the message, what they were speaking about, many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. See, the apostles or the disciples, they are speaking about who Jesus is, Lord and Messiah, and people are believing. God's mission is going forth. And so Peter and John are arrested, and the, the next day they're brought before the elders and the teachers of the law. They're in trouble. They're essentially in court here. They're, they're being grilled by the bigwigs of the day. And these leaders, they give Peter and John an instruction. It's there in verse 18. This is in your passage. This is what they're told. They commanded them not to speak or to teach at all 
in the name of Jesus. Now, I've printed out these words for you today, Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 31, because I'd like you to underline as we work our way through this passage a number of different things, especially when you see the word speak or speech or speaking. When you see that mentioned in this passage, and it's mentioned a lot, underline that for me. Here's a question for you. Why does Luke, who's our author, author of Acts, why do you think he records this story for us? What happened here? Well, here's what I think Luke wants us to know from this passage. I think he wants us to know that God is in control. That God is the real ruler. Or put another way, that God is sovereign. Sovereign over, over those who think they might be running the joint, running the place. And therefore, his mission, God's mission, which involves the disciples speaking about Jesus, that mission will not fail. Indeed, this passage will show us that despite the rulers and despite the kings of the earth rising up against God's anointed one, despite them killing Jesus, God's only son, well, they were only doing what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And so despite the threats that they face, Peter and John and the other disciples, they can pray confidently and boldly to speak of Jesus, knowing that despite the rulers around them raging against them, God's mission will prevail. And I think this is really important for us today. God is still sovereign today. He's still in control of the world in which we live. Nothing happens outside of God's will. Now today, you might feel like your life is crumbling around you. Or you might look at the world and think the world around us is crumbling. I don't want you to misunderstand me at this point. You and I, both of us, we, we do stupid things in this world. We make sinful mistakes. We make errors of judgment. But this passage reminds us that nothing is outside God's control. Nothing is outside the jurisdiction, you might like to say, of God. And so we should speak of him. We should pray to him knowing that he's in control and asking that he might help us to keep speaking boldly about who Jesus is. That, I think, is this passage in a nutshell. We're going to unpack it a bit more over the next few minutes. But that's the message. God is in control. His mission will not fail. And if we know that, then we can have confidence to play our part in his mission as we speak about Jesus also. So as we unpack this passage together, I just want us to look at three kind of big ideas together. The first is, how do the disciples respond in crisis? And you'll see these ideas in your leaflet. First one is, how do the disciples respond in crisis? Second thing I want us to look at is, how do the disciples make sense of a world where it looks like God's plan is coming up against opposition? And thirdly, what do the disciples do, having seen how the world all works? So we're going. Well, chapter 4, we see here pretty incredible encourage of Peter and John. They say um, that when you're faced with a crisis and the adrenaline hits, you'll either fight or you'll flight. And in this passage, I think we see Peter and John standing their ground despite 
great opposition. They're choosing to fight, metaphorically of course, but fight rather than flight. How do you behave when faced with a crisis? I'll tell you a bit of a story about when I was younger. I remember as a teenager coming home from school one afternoon, I parked my bike around the back of our house, which is what we normally did. But strangely, the back door of our house was open. I called out for mum, but she wasn't home, which is a bit strange. I walked into the kitchen and I noticed that the drawers were pulled out in the kitchen and the cupboard doors were open. And I kind of wondered, what's my mum been doing? called out, not there, started walking up towards her bedroom and when I got there I saw that the drawers and the cupboards were pulled out, things strewn across the floor, it was a total mess and for a second or two I wondered, mum's doing a really big spring cleaning job today because there's stuff everywhere but then all of a sudden I realised actually what was going on and that's that we'd been robbed. Now I'm a high schooler at this stage, I'll be about 14 years old, something like that, I don't remember exactly. What do I do? Well I kind of slink back down to the kitchen and grab a kitchen knife in my hand and then start wandering around the house. It seems crazy now, right? But that's what I did. Started walking around the house. All I found was a broken window in the laundry, thankfully. In fact, I'm so thankful to God that the person who pulled those drawers open was no longer there because I have no idea what I actually would have done. Faced with a crisis, how do you respond? In the passage that we read today, the apostles haven't been confronted with robbers, but they are in a crisis situation. They've been thrown into jail, and then they're brought before the bigwigs of Jerusalem, the bigwigs of the town, the high priest and others of his family, the rulers and the elders. And there they question Peter and John. I suppose today the equivalent would be something like being summoned to court to sit before the judge. Just to make it more realistic, imagine that the judge had also brought in the mayor and the archbishop and the local member of parliament and maybe the captain of the local football team because it seems to me that all the important people are here grilling Peter and John. And what they want from Peter and John is they want them to stop speaking about Jesus. If you're in their situation, Peter and John, how would you respond? How do you expect Peter to respond? You know, this is not the first time that Peter's been questioned about Jesus in his life, is it? Back in John's Gospel, which we looked at as a church uh, a little while ago, back in John chapter 18, after the Last Supper, but before Jesus had been crucified, a lowly servant girl questions Peter about Jesus. She says, aren't you? You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? speaking about Jesus to Peter. This is a servant girl, not the high priest, just a lowly servant girl. And how did Peter respond then? I'm not, he says. He denies knowing Jesus, denies being one of his disciples. And that was the first of the three times that Peter did that before the rooster crowed. The disciples aren't that different to you and I. They're not superhuman people. Peter has denied Jesus before. But what does he do here? See, here he's filled with the Spirit, isn't he? And so he has no hesitation of having Jesus on his lips. He seems calm, he seems controlled and confident. 
You rejected God's son, he says. He doesn't fly into a rage, but he doesn't shrink from the truth either. He doesn't run from the hill, run for the hills like he did with the servant girl and deny Jesus. Here is a man filled with the Spirit, and he has Jesus on his lips, even in a crisis. But the result of all of this is that Peter and John are ordered to stop speaking about Jesus. In your printouts, come with me down to verse 16 of chapter 4. I just want to read the little outcome of this courtroom-like meeting for you. Here's what it says. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing spreading any further among the people... We must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, Peter and John have been commanded not to speak at all about Jesus, and yet this is kind of in direct opposition to the mission that they've been given from God, to speak the good news about Jesus. To see the message of Jesus progress from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So what are they to do, these disciples? Well, they get together, now with their own people. See that there in verse 23, with their own people. And they speak, not to people, but to God. They pray. And the prayer that they pray, it's the longest prayer in the book of Acts... And what I want you to see from this prayer this morning is that it gives insight into where their minds are at and how they make sense of the opposition towards the good news of who Jesus is. See, this prayer, it shows us that the disciples knew that God was in control. It shows us what they're thinking. We're up to point two in your outline, if that's helpful to you. See, their prayer declares the sovereignty of God Their prayer declares his power and his control of the world in which they live. Let me read to you the first bit of what they pray. This is what they say. Sovereign Lord, they say, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now you got your pens there. I'd love you to underline or circle for me the words sovereign and made. Because this is a big point they're making. See, the disciples are acknowledging right up front here the size and the power and the magnificence of God. You made everything, we know, they say. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all the things that are in them. You're the creator. You're powerful beyond anything else. That's a statement of fact the disciples are saying. So why then are that powerful, sovereign God, why are his disciples facing opposition? How can that be? What do you think? Well, this is the question that the disciples have in a sense as well, isn't it? Now, Peter and John, they know of God as the sovereign creator God. They also know him as a speaking God. They might have been told to be silent, but God is not silent. He's spoken. And the disciples show this by quoting from Psalm 2. Let me read on. This quote is in verse 25 of Acts chapter 4. They say this, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. That's what pause here because I love this. It's a great explanation of, of how God speaks to us in and through the Bible. See, in the case of Psalm 2, God the Father spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of his servant David. That's King David. 
That's to kind of make this sense of you. You might like make sense of this for you. You might like to draw a circle around the you, the you, the God, the Father, and then around the Holy Spirit, and then around the word David, and link them with arrows. Because this is how God is communicated. God speaks by the Holy Spirit, in this case, through the mouth of his servant David. And what does God say through the mouth of David? He poses a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? I'd love you to mark that question. That's the question in this passage. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's a great question. It's a question we might ask today. Why, when we look around it, does it seem like everyone around us is fighting and raging against each other? Is that the case in your personal life? When you look around, does it feel like everybody is fighting and arguing? It's certainly true when we look at the global political level, isn't it? Rulers plotting in vain. For the disciples of Jesus, this must have been what it felt like, being told to stop speaking about Jesus. The leaders around them raging and plotting against the gospel. In verse 26, the disciples keep quoting from Psalm 2. But it's like it's a commentary on their current situation, isn't it? This is what it says, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Remember what's just happened? The Sanhedrin had gathered the elders, the priests, the Sadducees, they'd banded together to grill Peter and John. It must have been difficult for Peter and John. They'd been in jail. They'd been brought before the big wigs of the day. The first hurdle to the gospel going out. Why is this happening, this hurdle? Well, here's the question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And in verse 27, the disciples really bring it home to their present-day situation. Let me read it to you. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, keep the circling going. Can you circle for me the word anointed in verse 27? And then again, anointed in verse 26. And then can you connect them with a line so that you see the connection between 26 and 27? Then circle Herod and Pontius Pilate and the words kings and rulers. Herod and Pontius Pilate in 27, kings and rulers in verse 26. And connect them together. See, there's no doubt, is there, that the disciples see themselves in the words of Psalm 2. Their present circumstances reflect what David was talking about in Psalm 2. Let me remind you of the question again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In other words, God, how can this be happening to us? How can we make sense of the opposition that the gospel is finding? And then in verse 28, we get the answer to this question. And so if you've got your pen there, I'd love you to mark up somehow, or put a star against verse 28, make it jump from the page, because this is the answer. This is how it all makes sense. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Why did the rulers kill Jesus? That's the question. And the answer, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, God is in control, even in the most horrendous of events, the death and crucifixion of his only son. 
How do disciples interpret what's happening to them? How do they interpret this idea of facing opposition? And to do it by saying God is still in control. And just in case you think the disciples have got the psalm wrong, quoting it here, I've also printed out the psalm on your page there, or a little bit of it, just the first six verses. Look how this psalm progresses. I'll read it to you. Um, so it says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Why? Come down to verse 6 of the psalm. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. What's God done? I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. See, see, God is in control. Peoples of the world might conspire, they might band together, they might kill Jesus, and yet in doing so, God installed his king on Zion. Can you see how this prayer helps shed light on the way in which the disciples view the world? They see God as a sovereign God. A God who's completely in control, even in the horrendous events. Even in the events that might look like to outsiders that God's plan is just falling apart. Even in the event of the death of his son. He's a sovereign God, a God who's in control. Despite the plotting and conspiring of the priests and the elders and the rulers, God's mission will not be thwarted. I think this is how the disciples deal with the opposition they're facing. They are, of course, extraordinarily courageous. You can see that in verse 13 of the passage. Their courage comes, though, not because they've had a couple of drinks before this, but because they understand the sovereignty of God. Because they understand that even in the event of the death of Jesus, God has triumphed. He's installed his king on Mount Zion. And so they know that as they face opposition. God will triumph and his mission will not be hampered. I wonder if this is your experience of the world in which we live today. If you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, does this give you confidence? I hope it does because I think that's what it's designed to do. This worldview is supposed to show us the perseverance of the disciples and the reason why we can pray confidently to our God. In verse 29 of chapter 4, it seems that the disciples uh, take to heart the truth of this, the truth that God is in control, even in their present situation of persecution. And so, they ask for confidence to keep doing the very thing that they've been prohibited from doing, speaking boldly about Jesus. That's what it says in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want you to note something here from this as well, though. Other translations say, look, Lord, at their threats. I want you to notice that the disciples aren't just brushing off their situation. They're not ignoring it completely. Rather, they're asking the sovereign God to look at what's happening to them. They're pleading their case. Help us, they're saying. 
but also they're asking to speak with boldness so that the message of who Jesus is, both Lord and Messiah, can go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. It's a powerful prayer, isn't it? Big wigs of the Sanhedrin, they've made one ruling, one instruction, stop talking about Jesus. And the disciples pray for boldness to keep on doing the very thing they've been prohibited from doing. And they can do this. They can reconcile these things in their minds because they know that God is sovereign. They know that in the death of Jesus, even in the death of Jesus, that horrendous thing, this thing that should have put an end to any disciples following after, they know that even that, God in his power had decided beforehand that it would happen. I'd love us to draw confidence from this today. The way in, way in which our world is going today with viruses and global warming and pollution and people turning their backs on God, especially in the Western world. Do you remember, God is still sovereign today. God is in control of these things today. The implication then for us today is the same as it is for the disciples. Keep speaking about who Jesus is and what he's done. Keep telling people he is Lord and Messiah, that salvation is found in his name alone. We can have confidence to say these things, even when we're confronted with terrible things in our life, with sickness and broken relationships and failures at work or school. These things are not outside the power of God. Now, of course, let me be clear here. This, this doesn't make these things necessarily good. Our sinfulness, our failure to follow and live for God, our, our poor behavior. We, we have, as sinful people, corrupted almost every aspect of this world. That doesn't make those things good, but neither does it mean that God has lost his grip on us or on this world. It doesn't mean that God has been defeated. He was and he is sovereign. The death of Jesus meant that God's king was installed on Zion. I hope you've seen today in this passage the great courage of Peter and John as disciples of Jesus. I hope you've seen that courage stemming from their understanding of who God is, sovereign, in control. And the Spirit has been at work in them, and so they are speaking about who God is, Lord and Messiah. I want to leave you today with some other words spoken by an apostle, not by Peter, but by the apostle Paul. And these words come not from Acts, but from Romans chapter 8. And I want to read them to you almost as a prayer this morning, for they remind us of what we've seen today. They remind us that with God in control, we do not need to fear. Don't need to fear rulers or chief priests or robbers or thieves or diseases or troubles or hardships. I want to pray this prayer or these words as a prayer for you, and then we'll sing again. Let me pray from Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, 
is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.